I'm going to dive straight in, and I'm going to ask you to put your seatbelts on because we're going to move at the rate of sound or the speed of sound. How's that sound? Okay. So I've been given my time limit, which means that I will not finish, probably get through about half of what I have to, or what I have prepared, and don't worry, that happens to me every week. Um, uh, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a backstory to why this talk. Just over two years ago, Meryl and I felt the nudgings of God to plant a community, which was a little crazy because I was 57 then, and you don't plant a church at 57. Uh, Meryl's a marriage and family therapist, and I'm her agent, I'm her manager, and I can organize discounted rates for the needy amongst us. And um, so it seemed inappropriate, it seemed so silly, I'm traveling the world, we're helping churches, small and large, and now we're going to plant a church again. Uh, most church planning organizations will not finance you if you are over 40 years old, if you want to be a church planter. So, so it's not checking any boxes. Plus, we move into Costa Mesa, a new city. We have Meryl Tion, my now 20-year-old son, who's a surfer, college student, and myself. We have no church sending us, we have no money, and we're going into a city where we know no one. Meaning, we know people in the church, but we don't want them to come and join us, even though we have the most amazing church ever. So um, what happens, amazingly, is that over the next months, this crew finds us, because we start in our home. 23 to 25, in fact, initially it was even younger. And we're looking at this room, and we're looking at each other, and we're saying, what on earth are they doing here? In fact, I said to them, look, I'm an old man. Why don't you go and find a really cool, hip, young, sexy pastor with a, with a cool haircut and, and whatever and, and go there? Because honestly, what do I have? I'm generations away from you. I am culturally away from you. Um, how can this ever work? This was not a marriage made in heaven. But, but with a few exceptions, they haven't left. And so we started exploring what could church look like for a young millennial or Gen Z uh, community? What, what would that look like? And so God probed, probed me and prodded me, and, and I, I had to absolutely say, I have no idea. If I had a church of boomers, I probably would have a fairly good idea, or Gen X probably have a fairly good idea what to do. This one, I don't know. So Meryl's 57, which she won't mind me saying because she's stunning and gets more stunninger by the day. Um, I, I'm 61 in a few weeks' time, so gifts are welcome. And um, then we have two couples in their 40s. Then my other daughter and her husband who are in the early 30s are the next kind of oldest, plus minus. What on earth do we do with this crew? So we start the journey, and about a year and a half in, I realized we actually need to anchor ourselves in study of a book. Because when you've got this random motley crew of men and women, youngsters coming from everywhere, some Bethel, some Presbyterian, I mean, you name it, mega church, small church, house church, they're all finding a common space with us. So what I do after obviously prayer and just chatting it around with, with some, I decided let's go look at the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written by this incredibly wise author, an entrepreneur, a businessman, an ideator, a catalyst. 
of new spaces and places, surely that can tell us something. So I started reading through the six chapters. But my curious mind asks the question, why? Why is Paul writing this content to that church? Dealing with the content in and of itself is valuable and fun, but I need to know why. Because I feel like in the why wrestle, Simon Sinek, for those of you who do TED Talks, there is the why behind the what. It makes so much sense. Toyota asks five whys to every question. Everything they wrestle with, they go, why, 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 why? Sounds like a, a Beach Boys song. And so I asked, why, 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 why? And in my study, I stumbled onto Socrates. And Socrates died um, about 400 years before the book was written, but he was Grecian and had a huge impact on that whole peninsula, as you all well know. And he was most famous for the idea of the good life. He asked the question philosophically, the Dolce Vitae, what is the good life? What is it inside of us that we all yearn for and long for and desire? He was ultimately put to death by hemlock poisoning by the authorities of the day because they said he, he corrupted the youth and he acted with impiety, which means he spoke about things they did not like. Really, that's what happened. And Plato writes about his, his court scene in a most eloquent way. So now you've got my attention. Because into this region, a conversation was seeded about what the good life is. So then I went back and I said, what predominated in Ephesus at the time? Five things became apparent. Number one, it was a major political hub. It was, at one stage, the third most influential city in the Roman Empire. And forgive me, I'm a history nerd. I, I, that's my degree. So if I get a little historical on you, just smile and nudge your mate next to you. It's kind of poor Chris, you know. He's just like, he needs to get a life. Um, so, so, so he has this political voice, third only to Rome and Alexandria. Huge political clout and influence. Secondly, it had significant socioeconomic weight and clout. People went to Ephesus. People did not go through Ephesus. Money. Mucheros. Denari. So that's why in, 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 when Paul plants the church, they're not fussed that he's bringing a new theology or a new you know, a, a language because they, they're Jews and Jews do funny things. But, but suddenly he starts preaching, and this gospel affects the politics and the socioeconomic strata, and suddenly they burn 50,000 drachmas worth of literature. A drachma was a day's work. So I don't know what that looks like in Perth, but take one day's worth of work in Perth, multiply that by 50,000, and that's what they burnt of scrolls, witchcraft, magicians, um, all the paraphernalia that came with those dark arts. And suddenly the city looks up and says, this is not a good thing. Because they're messing with our definition of the good life. Politically, socioeconomically. Thirdly, they had the theater. The theater seated about 24 to 25,000 people, depending on which author you read. And in that theater was the performing arts and the gladiators. Now, we all know that the performing arts is probably the greatest moral, cultural shaper in our society. We live in L.A. It is. What happens there 
pretty soon uh, kind of domino effects its way down and becomes the norm. And the gladiators, where death became the way in which entertainment was heightened, literally kill, entertaining themselves to death. We're not done. They built a library of 1,200 to 1,500 scrolls. Shortly after Paul's writing, but the conversations were already there. What am I saying to you? The good life meant political influence. The good life meant wealth and opulence. The good life meant um, the theater, arts, entertainment. I need my Netflix. All right? I need a binge watch. That's the good life. The good life meant education. Because if you don't have education, what will happen to you? And then lastly, the Temple of Artemis. When I was in Athens uh, a couple of years ago, I stood up at the Acropolis and then had a look out over Athens where Paul preached his message. And they said the Temple of Artemis was significantly bigger than the Temple of Diana. And it's an interesting goddess because it, it was female, and on her there were, there were many bulbs or breasts. There's debate as to whether it, it indicated her femininity or sexuality or whether, in fact, it was about the little potions, magical potions she had that protected you. So now we find the good life has to have a spiritual component. It has to have an educational component. It has to have an economic component, an, inter, an entertainment component, and a political component. Now I'm reading Ephesians differently. Because I suddenly realized that this wise man who loved this church, he planted this church, he had such affection for this church, he writes about being in prison for her sake. She was dear to him, and suddenly I'm reading this book through the eyes or the ideas of he is trying to create a new good life. I daren't know what the good life looks like for Perth, Perthians. It's subtle. It drip feeds its way into you and me. Been in Orange County, L.A. for 22 years. So I sat down and said, with all these youngsters in our community, what is it that defines the good life in Orange County? My son was saying to us, he and a group of mates, 4th of July, Newport Beach. He just said, Dad, Botox, artificial boobs, artificial butts, blonde hair, everywhere. Do you know what the number one gift for a girl graduating high school was two years ago in Orange County? Breast augmentation. It means that an 18-year-old's body is not good enough by her parents' definition. They want to thank her for her education by giving her bigger boobs. Those people come into our communities. Am I ready to pastor them, love them, care for them, lead them, teach them? Oh, no, I'm not. Because if I don't understand what the prevailing good life view is, how can I help them? The prevailing good life worldview that, that's in me, dear friends, is the thing that brings the collision course in me where I live unhappily, I am downcast, I am depressed, I'm unhappy, because somehow the good life that's been seeded into me from when I'm a little girl or boy, or I've got to play basketball and and I don't know, whatever. I've got to do all these things because that's the good life. Run, 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 run. Pick up McDonald's. Run, 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 run. That's the good life. Or is the good life a quiet meal 
around the family table. Are you with me? You're pretty quiet. That's okay. So I sat down and I thought, what is the good life as defined by Orange County? I'll just go through it quickly. When I taught this, there was so much research, so much stuff. The cult of me, the gospel of Saint me. That's David Brooks, my favorite New York Times columnist. He speaks of the gospel of Saint me. And fundamentally, he says, when university students are released Every speech given at their graduation, and I quote, they will be sent off into this world with theology ringing in their ears. This is the theology. Follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, find yourself. This is the litany, he says, of expressive individualism. And everyone applauds, and everyone throws their caps into the air, and we are on a crazy collision between the good life that has been put on the table and a knee bowed humbly to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The good life presented to Orange County is no one will be the boss of me. Under no circumstances will anyone infringe on my freedom, my happiness, my self-definition or my self-expression. No, you won't. No, you won't touch my freedom or my happiness. Have you ever wondered why we think we should be happy? Have, have we ever thought about that? Have we ever considered that? Have we ever put that on the table? The good life that America offers is the right and the pursuance of happiness. Who said? Thirdly, I create my own spirituality and morality. I'm, I'm leading this little community, and I'm realizing they sleep together. Now, that's not that strange if you think of a world outside there. But they don't think it's strange. Drugs, alcohol. I'm not talking about a drink or a beer or a glass of wine. I'm talking about excess, and they think it's okay because the good life that's been given to them that they bought into and believed is that I do these things and splash my life with a bit of Sunday worship here and there. I redefine, fourthly, beauty. I said it to you, theater is the, the, and the arts are the vehicle for culture creation. And so they define beauty. I said this, um, and uh, uh, I can't remember where I was speaking, and I just mentioned it in passing, and it created quite a curious reaction. You know, you know my granny was fat. Um, and she had the kind of wavy hair and the glasses, and, uh, you know, she, she wore kind of very straight dresses. Well, why do I say she's fat? Because I'm a child of the 60s, and everyone knows Twiggy was beautiful. Because beauty was defined by skinny. You, you, you just, you got to be skinny. Like this little waif. Kate Moss. See? And then, I don't know what they were thinking, but the Kardashians came on the scene. No amount of money is too much to look like Kim. Cosmopolitan magazine. 
It's no coincidence when strangers tell Jennifer Pamloma, 26, that she looks like Kim Kardashian. Over the last nine years, she claims to have spent more than $500,000 on roughly 30 plastic surgery procedures, including breast augmentation, liposuction, breast in, uh, sorry, butt injections, the removal of several ribs, ribs, and tweaks to her cheeks, chin, and nose to emulate the reality star's look and lifestyle. Well, we've redefined beauty, haven't we? So that little 15, 14-year-old girl who starts looking beautiful, sitting in our communities, going to our youth group, the good life that gets beaten into her, every magazine she picks up, every time she opens her Instagram account. Social media, ladies and gentlemen, please protect your sons and daughters, but particularly your daughters from a wild world out there that is designed to cause her pain. Show me someone who has, reads an Instagram account, uh, a session, 40 minutes, and goes off and feels better about themselves. Because the very foundation of the Instagram is deception. I will craft my high points and get you to believe that's where I live. Okay. Fifthly, Orange County is true Wealth and prosperity is designed by possessions. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Jonah's fight with God, for my opinion, and you can disagree, was what is the good life? God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah said, hell no. That's not my idea. That's not my dream. That's not what I want. That's not what I'm going to do. That's not the good life. And ladies and gentlemen, I think, and I want to suggest strongly, that the inability for us to understand how the good life has shaped our perception, expectation, and sense of happiness, and we drag it into our Jesus journey, and we end up feeling so dismayed, so discombobulated, so irritated by the fact that Jesus isn't giving me the good life, but that's what the preacher said he would do. All right. Let's go, we'll do a few from Ephesians. I thought, let's peep. Let's cheat a little bit here. And let's go to Ephesians and see what possibly could Paul, this great father who's in prison, riding with great affection to the church that he fathered and loved and, and cared for. Is there anything we can say in the light of what I've shared with you that he wants to suggest is the alternative good life? I think there are and obviously, I can't do much in 15 minutes but tickle your curiosity. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a spectacular reorientation. Church is now not a place we attend, but it's a family we're adopted into, which then aligns us to the will of the Father. It's a whole new way of doing life. This is not twice a month I splash my life and my wife and my kids with a bit of Jesus, or if I'm single, I come and booger wena a little bit and see if there's any, sorry, I can't say that too often in LA, it doesn't mean anything, but there are a 
smattering of South Africans in the room. What do we see here? Is Paul is creating a new family lineage, and he's giving us a window of opportunity that I get adopted into a family, and then I sweet surrender to the purpose and the will of God. It was the year 406. A young 16-year-old kid was playing on his father's property when pirates from Ireland came across, captured him, and many others took them back to Ireland and sold them on the slave market. His name was Patrick. For six years, he was a shepherd after being sold to one of the local chieftains and sent into the mountains of uh, the, 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 the hills of Ireland to look after the sheep, poorly clad, poorly fed, poorly looked after. He wasn't a slave in a house where warmth and food was part of the deal. He had to live out there, fend for himself. And Steve Addison, one of your great thinkers and theologians, said, it was during that time that God took out of Patrick his love for materialism, his love for privilege, and put inside of him a love for Jesus. Where was he? He was a slave boy in Ireland, in the hills, where no one cared whether he lived or died. He was a possession. He said, I prayed a hundred times a day. At night, I did the same and sometimes more. He said, I would wake up in the early hours of the morning in the Irish winter and I would get on my knees and I would cry out to God. What was initially disillusionment and pain and heartache soon became the platform for a transformative life of a leader that would take a nation and flip it on its head. After six years of slavery, you talk about a lost teenage years, 16 to 22. He got a dream one night. Leave now. Walk 200 miles across. The, now remember, this is Ireland. There weren't roads. There weren't towns. It was just this Celtic chaos. And there is a boat waiting for you. He found the boat. And for the next 20 years, we don't know what happened to him. The Catholic authors say that he went to study, but he said in his own confessions, he said, I was an unlearned man. The historian said, well, maybe he spent time at home, and maybe he did, because we know he did go home for a bit. And one day, in a dream, an angel appeared to him called Victoricus, with many pages in his hand. And he took one page out, and gave it to Patrick. And as Patrick read it, he heard the voices, recognizable voices that he had known in Ireland. It's 20 years later. In the forest of Foucault, beckoning him, come, servant boy, come and walk amongst us again. Is this the good life? Is this what his mom and dad said? My boy, we are middle class. I'm a judge, magistrate. You stay here. Your life, middle class life, is totally sorted out. They pleaded with him not to go. The possibility of death hung around every corner. His master could kill him. He was a runaway slave. And he landed in Ireland, and his first convert was his master, and his first baptism was his master. 
and he turned Ireland around. Where is the good life in that, ladies and gentlemen? See, what Paul offers here to a very opulent, materialistically based, full of superstition and mystery Ephesian community is there is a different good life. It's a life of sweet surrender that I am adopted into his family and I now live by the purpose and the will of God and that's it. That's the good life. The second thing quickly, are you with me? Chapter 2. I just want to tickle your curiosity. If I can get you to go home and read this book and ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is the new good life you want to teach me? If I can get you to do that and apply these exquisite truths, not as a book with a checklist of do this, do this, do this, but a major transformation of what the good life really looks for those of us who are Jesus lovers, and let it turn you on its head. You will live a life more sublime, a life full of mystery surprises and miracles, unlike anything you thought. And how do I know? I've been doing it for 42 years. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2. I'll pick up, pick up in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, you hard-working temple of Artemis followers. All the rules and guidelines of what it meant to be a follower of Artemis. This is not of yourself, it's a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast but we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Is this the good life? Is this the life? Pursue your dream, march by your own drumbeat, you know, do what you want to, don't let anyone tell you what to do, no one infringe on your freedom. Oh, no, no, there's a whole different narrative that Paul is laying out for us. Mother Teresa I think she was six or eight when her dad was politically assassinated in Macedonia. He was for the independence of Albania, and they suspect that he was poisoned. Her mother, rather than be a victim, rather than fall apart, the family's got no money, you know, not much, dad didn't leave much behind, never, and maybe never is too great of a word, although one author said that, never had a dinner without a stranger at the table. And put into a little daughter, and her name wasn't Teresa, then it just slipped my mind now, I'm sorry. Never eat a plate of food without offering it to someone who doesn't have. Her mother was not a victim. Her mother used an opportunity to teach her daughter the good life. It's not dependent upon where the dad's around. It's dependent upon sovereign provision. She was 12 years old, and the school choir went to the Black Madonna's shrine. Now, I know for us evangelicals, this is hard to follow. But I'm so glad God's not so limited. And as a 12-year-old girl, she met with Christ, and she believed she was to live a celibate life. She would never know the kisses of a man. She would never know the intimacy of a man. And she would spend her life in India after she joined the Sisters of Loretta in Ireland. At the age of 18, she dashed across there. She got trained in Ireland and went to Calcutta 
and her journey began. She started as a school teacher. And she worked in a school for poor, underprivileged Bengalese girls. The school was such a success, and she was so good at it that she started moving up the ladder, so to speak, and ended up in 1945, 46, where she was the principal of the school. And every year during the July vacation, she would get on the train from Calcutta and, and catch the train up to the Himalayas where she would vacation and get her soul restored. But this time, July 1946, was a different one. Because it was at that time where the Spirit of God met with this little Catholic nun from the Sisters of Loretta and said to her, will you spend the rest of your days with the poorest of the poor? And she knew it wasn't a question. It was a calling. It took her six years to get Vatican approval, and she started the Sisters of Mercy in 1952. For the next almost 50 years, ladies and gentlemen, her good life was sitting holding lepers as they died, wiping away the tears of the street kids who never knew the affection of a mother, finding a home for the homeless, the broken, the bruised, the forgotten, the lowest caste in India. Paul's definition is that we don't live the good life, we live the good works. And the good works are the works that he gives us to do, and therein is our life's meaning. Therein is our life's purpose. When you read her biography, autobiography, and you read some of her quotes, it was a brutal life. She experienced incredible darkness sometimes. She struggled that she didn't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit that often. But a train trip to Calcutta shaped Mother Teresa's good life. I suspect, I suspect we have to redefine the good life. I suspect we have to position ourselves with the text here and allow the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to slowly percolate our way out of the things that were given to us. Patrick's parents pleaded with him, please don't go. He was living in the collision course between two fathers. An earthly father said, son, don't go, they'll kill you. A heavenly father said, son, go, you will save them. Which father do I listen to? When we read the Scriptures, and I'm coming into land, when we read the Scriptures, particularly this letter, around the gaze of what is the good life that I have for my life? What is the good life I have for my marriage? What is the good life I've framed with my kids? Have I taught my kids what, whatever the good life is, Perthian style? I have a friend, his name is Preston Sprinkle. He's a professor. And, and his wonderful wife, Chris, they live in Idaho, Boise, Idaho. And I'm trying to get him to come to South Africa. He's a beautiful man. And he says, you know, Chris, we drive janky cars. Janky, you know what it means. It just sounds like it is, okay? Scratched, dinged old cars. 
And he said, you know why we do that? He said, because every summer we take our kids somewhere in the world to go and serve some underprivileged community. That's our good life. Last year we dug, dug wells, four kids in Nepal. That's the good life. Because we've allowed God to get hold of our mind. One last story. Tony Campolo is a professor at Northeastern University in America. He tells a story one day of getting a phone call from a mother desperate and despairing. She said, Tony, I don't know if you're aware of it, but have you heard what my son has done? And he said, yes, I have, ma'am. And he, she says, please, can you go and help him? This is the son's story. He got a PhD, was lecturing at a university on the way up, living the good life. And he realized that was never, ever what God had seeded inside of him. Because God wanted him to be a postman. So Tony went to see him. It kind of, are you okay? Have you burnt out? I mean, is this, do you need a sabbatical? He said, Tony, I'm probably the most qualified postman in the post office. He said, you know, so I get tender about these things. He said, you know, but in the mornings I get into my little van and I've got all the mail. And when I stop off there, Mrs. Smith comes out and I'm obviously just making up names. And she says, hi. And he says, I get out of my van and I say, hi. And she said, do you want to come in for a cup of tea? He said, oh, I'd love to come in. I sit there with her and she says, you know, I only have one son left, but, but, but he lives a long way away, and no one knows how I'm doing. And he says, Mrs. Smith, I know how you're doing. And then he says, he gets in his car, and he, go, his little car, and he goes to the next place, and, and he said, when I, when I get home, back to the post office, he said, I'm always the last to get back. He says, I don't sleep at night because I have way too much caffeine. He said, but I'm doing, what I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's the good life. It's what God has seeded inside of me. I followed someone else's dream only to find out it's barren on top. And then I found out my dream. I'm supposed to love the people no one misses, no one remembers, no one cares about. I think, and my opinion can be wrong, of course, that that's what Paul tried to do here. He said, this is going to take a long time, but I want to help you recraft what the good life really looks like. And ladies and gentlemen, when we allow the Spirit of God to come in and to reshape us with the gospel, it's a journey. It's a journey. Out of that, Meryl at 52 went back to college, university, should I say, to get her master's in marriage and family therapy. She too was 20, 30 years older than most of her classmates. And the first, the first weeks coming back from seeing clients, she would often drive home weeping. Well, they're bad. Here's the sophisticated executive woman earning six figures. And she sits with Meryl and she tells her her story. And Meryl's comment to me is, babe, 
but when I'm in that place, eight hours of therapy a day, back, on back, on back, on back, on back. When I do that, grace comes on me. It does mean I've got to die to the good life that was leaked into me. And then I've got to let the gospel replace it with the good works he's prepared in advance for me to do.